Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Gaza and perhaps let's start with a question on everyone's mind, which is what's happening with Israel's supposed ground invasion? Uh, yes. So there was a uh, big um, breaking report from the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday that uh, said, according to uh, the usual anonymous U.S. officials and people familiar with Israel's war planning was how they put it, uh, that the Israeli government has agreed for now, that's again their phrasing, uh, to a request from the Biden administration to delay the ground operation uh, to allow the U.S. military more time to move assets into the Middle East. Uh, specifically, the Pentagon is moving around a dozen air defense units to the Middle East, anticipating a wider regional conflict or, or an expansion of the regional aspect of this conflict that would coincide with the start of the ground operation. And so it wants more air defense units, primarily, I think, to protect U.S. forces who are stationed in Iraq and Syria. I will throw in here uh, that they could simply withdraw those forces, but they're not going to do that. So they're instead moving these air defense units in. I don't know if any of the air defense units are going to be detailed to Israel. The U.S. is providing air defense support to Israel in the form of additional Iron Dome units and ammunition for those units, uh, but I don't know uh, I think this is, uh, you know, moving things like THAAD units and, and Patriot batteries into the region uh, is a, a separate effort, uh, and I don't know if they're linked in any way. The Israelis are also, we're told, uh, trying to account for uh, how to do the ground invasion while maintaining humanitarian aid, whatever meager uh, amount of humanitarian aid is getting in, and trying to secure the release of additional hostages, um, many of whom will probably be at risk of death in the event of a ground invasion, some number of whom uh, Hamas said on Thursday, uh, almost 50 of whom have been killed, apparently, uh, at least according to this statement, by the Israeli air bombardment out of uh, 220 or so uh, who were taken in the original attacks on October 7th and taken back to, to Gaza. So you mentioned humanitarian aid. What do we know about the situation in Gaza in terms of its humanitarian implications? Well, um, I mean, we know they don't they're out of everything. I mean, the Israelis cut off uh, food, water, medicine, fuel, everything uh, at the start of this. And this is after a 16 year blockade where all of those kinds of things were uh, limited, interdicted and, and certainly anything you know more sophisticated was uh, largely blocked. Um, aid did start uh, over the weekend, finally, after some stops and starts, the effort to bring in truckloads of aid through the Rafah checkpoint in southern Gaza, which which uh, connects to Egypt's uh, Sinai region, uh, began. Um, I, I want to say, hopefully, this is just the opening 
phase of it because it is woefully inadequate. Uh, they've brought in um, on, on a, a couple of on a couple of days uh, since uh, the weekend. They've managed to bring in twenty trucks in a single day, uh, and that's only happened a couple of times. Other days have been you know like fourteen, I think, eight on Wednesday, um, just eight, and and that is just you know woefully inadequate to uh, supporting two point three. A million or so uh, people who are living in Gaza, who are um, drinking groundwater, who don't have medicine, who are struggling to find food. Uh, it's just completely inadequate. The, the UN says it wants to bring in 100 truckloads of food or uh, not food of aid per day. Oxfam, which just released a statement earlier this week accusing the Israelis of using starvation as a weapon of war, says it, it needs to bring in 100 truckloads of just food, uh, not not including medicine and these other things. Uh, so, you know, what's being what's happening here is is um, I don't want to I don't want to call it a farce. I guess any every little bit helps, but it is farcical to see the Biden administration kind of, you know, twisting its arm around to pat itself on the back for uh, doing what is not even the bare minimum is is just, you know, not not even close really to the bare minimum. Um, speaking of what's been going on in D.C., uh, what about calls for a ceasefire? And perhaps we could um, fold this into a conversation about the United Nations. Uh, yeah, there have been growing calls for a ceasefire to allow humanitarian aid in, perhaps to allow at least the foreign nationals who are trapped in Gaza, the people who have dual citizenship or otherwise have uh, you know foreign passports, to allow them to get out, uh, even if the Egyptian government is resisting the idea of letting you know Palestinians uh, out on uh, mass. The efforts to secure some kind of uh, ceasefire are falling on deaf ears when it comes to the U.S. And, and to Israel. Instead, the talk now has turned to the idea of humanitarian pauses, uh, which basically mean that the Israeli military would agree to not strike certain places at certain times to allow people in Gaza to uh, to get to, uh, theoretically at least, to get to whatever humanitarian aid uh, is being brought in. Um, the U.S., proposed a uh, resolution at the UN Security Council on Wednesday that called for humanitarian pauses. Now, you may remember a week ago, the U.S. vetoed a humanitarian resolution that called, or a resolution at the Security Council that called for uh, humanitarian pauses. So uh, this is uh, perhaps uh, having taken some of the criticism it got for that veto and, and uh, you know, trying to uh, to do something to assuage people. They proposed a new resolution that was vetoed uh, by Russia and China. So uh, it did not pass. It would have passed. It got 10 votes in favor, but for the vetoes. Uh, so even that seems, uh, you know, like a long shot at this point. The European Union uh, had a leaders summit uh, on uh, Thursday that that called wound up calling for humanitarian pauses uh, to the extent to which the EU is prepared to actually do something to secure that uh, is unclear and um, as I say the the even if you got this it's it's sort of a gimmick uh, in the sense that it's not it doesn't really allow for widespread distribution of aid it's just a, a way to kind of clear out one area and then all the people who need the aid have to come to the aid and they have to go through places that will still be getting bombed uh, by the Israelis. So it's, it's kind of a gimmick to, to, so, so that we can all look like 
uh, we're doing something to to support these people. Uh, meanwhile, you have uh, again just uh, humanitarian catastrophe happening here. You've got um, people showing signs of illness from drinking dirty water. You've got um, you know people starving. You've got hospitals that are going to run out of generator fuel soon, which means anybody who's on a machine, dialysis, a ventilator. Uh, an incubator is is going to die if they're depending on that machine to keep them alive. Uh, so lots lots of very grim stuff happening here. Thanks, Derek. Um, let's talk a little bit about the geopolitics of the situation. In particular, what have the regional effects been? It's been a bit up and down from what I can tell, but please give us the details. There's been ongoing fighting on the on the Israeli-Lebanese border, as we've uh, talked about. Nothing major new to, to report uh, on that front, I don't. Uh, I haven't seen uh, what what it has been picking up uh, has been uh, Israeli strikes in Syria. Now, uh, on Wednesday, early Wednesday morning, uh, Israeli strikes killed at least eight soldiers and wounded uh, several other people in southern Syria. After apparently there was some shelling from that direction the previous night, or I'm not sure exactly what the details were. Uh, but the Israelis have also been attacking pretty consistently the airports at Aleppo and Damascus. Uh, they attacked Aleppo airport again on Wednesday. Uh, they're keeping those facilities more or less out of commission. Uh, this is because uh, the Iranian revolution, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and you know the Iranian government uh, bring in Weapons, essentially arms for Hezbollah and other related uh, militias through those airports. And the Israelis have, have bombed, have been striking them consistently throughout the, uh, the Syrian civil war going back many years. But they've been doing it more frequently of late, uh, I think, in response to concerns that uh, about the, the regionalization of this conflict. Thank you, Derek. Um, let's move on from Gaza for the moment, but of course, we'll be keeping a close eye on it. Let's talk about the Philippines incident in the South China Sea. Uh, yeah, there was apparently a pretty tense incident over the weekend. Uh, the Philippine and Chinese navies or coast guards were active, as they often are at the same time, in the uh, Spratly Islands, specifically around the Second Thomas Shoal. This area is claimed by both uh, the Philippine and Chinese governments. And the Philippine military has a kind of makeshift ramshackle base in the Second Thomas Shoal on a decaying ship i think world war ii era ship that's that's kind of run aground there and that they use it to to house soldiers or to house military personnel and lately every time they've tried to resupply this base the chinese coast guard has come in and, and harassed them in some way or tried to block it uh because you know of course the china you know chinese government regards this base as illegitimate it regards it as uh, Philippines squatting on a uh, on a Chinese uh, maritime claim. Over the weekend, uh, another one of these relief resupply missions uh, was undertaken, and, and it two of the ships collided with Chinese uh, vessels. One was a Chinese Coast Guard cutter. Uh, the other, uh, the Philippine Philippine officials described it as part of the Chinese maritime militia, which essentially I think means it was a a private ship that's been uh, commandeered into service. So, uh, you know, very tense. I mean, that's the kind of thing that can can uh, escalate quickly 
into into something more serious with you know with if people don't remain in check and it, it's it's dangerous for the boats of course obviously as well uh, so this seems like an escalation in in this ongoing dispute over the the shoal and it's something to watch because of course the US uh, has a treaty a defense treaty with the Philippines uh, it has obviously the new Cold War hostility with China anyway so it's certainly something that could wind up bringing the US in uh, to a situation like this and uh, you know things could get much worse thanks Derek uh, let's talk about China and particularly um, Wang has just visited the United States so what happened there yeah, Wang Yi is in the United States, Chinese foreign minister. He is meeting with uh, Anthony Blinken, I believe, today, Thursday, was when that was supposed to happen. Uh, on Friday, he's supposed to meet with Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, at the White House. And it sounds like the Biden administration will arrange some kind of interaction uh, between Wang and Joe Biden himself. I, I don't know how extensive that's going to be. It might just be, you know, kind of arranging to bump into each other in the hall or a quick handshake and a photo op, uh, or it could be, you know, some some degree of uh, substantive interaction, I guess, but I, I simply don't know. Nevertheless, this is a, a big step forward for a relationship that a few months ago was in tatters after the great uh, balloon calamity of 2023. Uh to have, I mean, we've seen a number of senior Biden administration officials visiting China. This is the highest level Chinese visit to the U.S. in quite some time. Uh, one of the main objects or main objectives of, of Wang's visit and his meeting with Blinken in particular, I think, is going to be uh, laying out some of the ground ground rules or the, the you know, setting the groundwork for a planned summit of sorts or meeting, call it whatever you want, between Biden and Xi Jinping, the, the president of China, uh, to take place during, uh, I believe, the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, Summit that's supposed to take place uh, next month in, uh, in San Francisco. So that's something uh, also to keep an eye out for. All right, Derek, let's talk about graphite export controls and its effect on electric vehicles. Yeah, this is kind of interesting. The Chinese government announced on Friday that starting December 1st, it's going to require export licenses for uh, many graphite products. Graphite is used in batteries for electric vehicles. So this is going to send, uh, already has really sent some some uh, some shockwaves or, or at least, uh, you know, some level of uh, concern through that industry, and it may spur research into alternative materials that could be used in place of graphite. Uh, I think it's an example of China uh, kind of turning the idea of export controls and trade limitations, which the U.S. has been using uh, to limit Chinese high-tech industries with, uh, you know, blocking chips and uh, AI uh, chips in particular, and and tools to make uh, to manufacture those components. Uh, from going to China, this is China turning around and using its almost monopoly, really, on a, a number of key minerals that are uh, used in a lot of uh, a lot of these kinds of applications, uh, and sort of flexing its muscles in that area as to to counter some of the things the U.S. has done. Thanks, Derek. Um, I think let's move on to Sudan, and can you give us an update on what's going on there? My understanding is that it's a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, well, it is a humanitarian catastrophe, certainly. I think we've we've talked about that to some uh, at some some length. You know, there's nothing really new to report on the the humanitarian front. Uh, just to say that 
you know, the the capital area, Khartoum and, and Omdurman and, and Bahri, the, the three city capital area, uh, is, you know, has been in a state of war for six months now. People aren't able to get food. They aren't able to get, you know, all the all the usual things that you would expect. Medical care is uh, difficult to come by. So it's just been a, a disaster and one that doesn't seem like it's uh, really going to change very much because they've, they've sort of reached a state of equilibrium, uh, it seems like. Although I will say, there, there was a, a bit of a, a shakeup this week. Now, the first thing to note is uh, that peace talks or at least ceasefire talks are apparently underway again. The Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces group uh, have apparently agreed to resume the Jeddah negotiations. You may recall these were going on for uh, some time, sponsored by or mediated by the United States and Saudi Arabia in the Saudi city of Jeddah. Uh, the, the mediators finally pulled the plug on it, I think, back in June because they weren't accomplishing anything. Uh, they've decided to start up again. Uh, given the time and the sort of exhaustion that may have set in since June, I, I guess there is some reason to think they could be more successful this time around than they were previously, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, the big change which happened uh, on Thursday, and I haven't really had a chance to, to even process it, is that the uh, RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, cl- are claiming that they have taken over the city of Nyala, which is the uh, capital of Sudan's South Darfur state and the, the largest city in the country outside of that capital region uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this is, you know, potentially very significant development. It, it would leave the RSF in very strong position in the Darfur region overall, which is probably not good for many of the residents of that region, given the RSF's kind of support network among the Arab tribes that were rightly accused of genocide during the the the, the main uh, Darfur conflict uh, several years ago. So that's uh, that's a development that uh, I think will have to be watched. It's unclear how that's going to affect uh, the possibilities of n- negotiating a ceasefire, let alone you know something uh, more serious than that. Uh, if the if the RSF uh, suddenly finds itself you know riding a, a wave of success and feeling uh, good about its chances, it's it's less likely, I think, to to agree to any kind of a pause in the fighting that could uh, could interrupt its momentum. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Gabon. It seems like the U.S. has suspended aid over the coup that recently occurred there. Yes, uh, this is another case like Niger. Uh, I think uh, earlier this month, the Biden administration on Tuesday officially uh, acknowledged that the military coup in August uh, in Gabon uh, is a or was a coup. Uh, it had not yet made that designation. This means by law, it has to suspend most U.S. military and financial aid to the country. Uh, The Biden administration had already frozen most of that aid anyway after the coup. So this just makes things uh, a bit more permanent, although it will uh, that aid will presumably be resumed once uh, you can uh, convincingly pretend at at least that Gabon has transitioned back to democratic governance. There's not much else to say here. I think it's uh, interesting that the administration is doing this. Uh, at a time when, shall we say, it's international credibility on the whole human rights and democracy versus autocracy thing is is probably not at its highest level. So, uh, you know, it's trying to uh, bring some consistency to uh, to U.S. foreign policy by acknowledging these things uh, as what they were, as coups, uh, even though it means cutting aid, it means potentially losing some influence with those those governments. 
it's trying to to make a show of things, I think. Thanks, Eric. Um, I think now is the time for an update on Ukraine, and particularly how has the Gaza war affected, or as the case may be, not affected the U.S.'s approach or Russia's approach to the war? Well, I don't think people are paying attention to it as much as they were before, and I don't, I know that's sort of uh, trivializing, and I don't mean to be, but uh, certainly uh, if you thought people's attention for, for Ukraine was starting to, to run out, it's, it's gotten totally overtaken. By Gaza, the conflict. I mean, it's 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 kind of frozen at this point, and you're heading in. We're heading into uh, season, you know, the late kind of later fall and, and winter seasons where it's not uh, necessarily conducive to a lot of movements. The Russian military is uh, reportedly pushing hard uh, to try and take two cities. Uh, we've talked about Avdivka. Uh, which is located in Donetsk Oblast. We've talked about Kupiansk, which is in Kharkiv Oblast. They're pushing on both of those fronts, I think, in hopes of kind of ending the quote-unquote campaign season uh, with a victory, uh, with at least one other victory. Beyond that, I mean, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is is continuing uh, sort of in, in the south, in the southeast, in Zaporizhia Oblast. Uh, I haven't seen much indication of any progress there. And so, yeah, we're, we're back to kind of a, a static front line, I think, although, you, you know, any, either of these cities that the Russians are attacking could go at any time. I'm starting to see, uh, for example, a lot of commentary around Avdivka in particular that resembles the commentary that, that uh, was being offered uh, around uh, Bakhmut when the Russians were uh, really pressuring that city. And it's sort of, uh, you know, they're losing, they're sacrificing a lot of men, they're sacrificing a lot of uh, materiel, and they're not making a lot of progress. And of course, that was uh, a few weeks like that until the Russians took the city. And then, you know, people stopped talking about how they were throwing all their their men and materiel against uh, to, to accomplish nothing, because of course, they finally did. So I, I suspect that city may be uh, on the same path toward an eventual Russian takeover. What's your take on how this will affect the U.S. approach to the war? The fact that now Biden is funding both Israel and Ukraine, or do you think that won't matter? He'll just fund it. That's that. Uh, well, I mean, what we know so far, and, and we can sort of bring up the uh, the U.S. funding or the funding request that Biden made, uh, which I think we we're going to talk about anyway, uh, the the administration submitted uh, late last week after uh, Biden's big Thursday Oval Office address, uh, you know, admonishing Americans to keep their nose to the grindstone and keep funding these wars. Uh, he submitted a new uh, national security funding bill to Congress uh, totaling $106 billion dollars. Uh, in new funding, M the majority of it for Ukraine, in fact, 61 billion uh, in new funding for Ukraine. There was a 14 million, a 14 billion dollar uh, cut that was supposed to go that's supposed to go to Israel. There are some other projects, border security uh, to try and get the uh, immigration uh, freaks on board. And uh, there are a few other things, as I think additional military aid to Taiwan and some, some other projects. Uh, but the, the two main asks were the 61 billion for Ukraine and 14 billion for Israel. The 14 billion for Israel is probably an easy sell in Congress. I think you've got some Republicans in the House who are resistant to more aid for Ukraine and are, are talking about trying to split these things. And it'll be interesting to see if the uh, the Biden administration sticks to its 
proverbial guns here and tries to, uh, you know, and insists that they be linked in this way. Uh, if it comes down to it, are they prepared to veto a, a bill that gives them the Israel money that they want, but doesn't give them the Ukraine money that they want? I don't know. We don't cover domestic politics that much here, but uh, people are probably aware that the House of Representatives finally has a, a new speaker, a, a guy I've never heard of. Uh, I don't even Mike Johnson, I think, is that his name? I can't I don't even know for sure what his name is. But that potentially clears the way to at least start considering this bill. I mean, the House has been in a dysfunctional, chaotic mess for uh, weeks now. Uh, but now that it finally has a speaker, I guess they could get down to business. All right, Derek, let's stay in Europe and talk about the uh, recent happenings with Sweden and NATO. Yes. Uh, the president of Turkey, a friend of the friend of the pod, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, if he ever wants to retire, third mic's open. Uh, he has submitted finally a bill to ratify Sweden's accession to NATO to the Turkish parliament. Uh, this is about this came uh, earlier this week, about three weeks later than Erdogan had had promised previously. He had promised to submit the bill on the first day that the parliament was back from its summer recess, but he made everybody sweat it out uh, for a, a few weeks. He's uh, There's no indication how quickly parliament intends to take this up. It's got to go through committee, and uh, that, that could be slowed down if they want to kind of, you know, really make people sweat a little bit longer. So I don't know that this is going to be a priority. Uh, but I, I have to think that Erdogan would not have, have gone to the trouble even of submitting it if he weren't prepared to kind of countenance uh, Swedish succession. So that that seems like it's uh, on some kind of a path to finally being concluded. The Hungarian government still hasn't uh, ratified Swedish accession either. Uh, it's unclear when they plan to take it up. The Hungarians have uh, evinced no indication. They've offered no indication that they're prepared to like stand alone without Turkey and block Sweden's membership into NATO. They are talking rhetorically now about, you know, what doesn't matter what Turkey does. We don't care. Uh, but but in their actions, they've they've gone along. They, they seem to be trailing behind Turkey uh, on all of this and, and kind of uh you know, not willing to uh, to go it alone. So I suspect that that Sweden's going to be uh, we're probably, you know, maybe months, uh, a couple months or, or even just a few weeks uh, away from from this finally being over. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's also stay in Spain. And this one goes out to a friend of the pod, Nando Vila. And let's talk about the update in uh, the Spanish coalition. Yes, uh, the Spanish Socialist Party and the leftist Sumar Alliance announced on Tuesday that they had reached a coalition agreement. Uh, you may recall that the Conservative People's Party, which uh, kind of emerged victorious from the last Spanish election in the sense that it was the largest uh, single party emerging from that election, uh, failed in its bid to form a government, its alliance with the far-right Vox Party. Uh, doomed its chances with all the smaller parties that they would have needed to to put together uh, majority support. Uh, this is sort of the the next cut. Then uh, the socialists who came in second, incumbent Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez uh, leading the party. They are now trying to do the same thing. They're trying to get majority support in the Congress of Deputies to form a government. The the alliance with Sumar was expected. Uh, it is a necessary precondition, obviously, toward the uh, the formation of a government, but it's not enough. And Sanchez is uh, still negotiating with the uh, Catalan separatist parties, 
uh, who are in, who they're, they're sort of they're demanding uh, essentially, I think, amnesty for anybody who was involved with uh, the 2017 uh, secession referendum in the Catalonian region. Uh, if Sanchez is, is prepared to go along with that, then uh, he may be able to to form a government. If he's not, or if he can't come to some uh, agreement with the Catalan parties, then they you're you're probably going to see a snap election in January, where Spanish voters will uh, lucky duck Spanish voters will get to do it all over again, uh, and uh, who knows how that's going to go out. Thanks, Derek. And let's stay in the Spanish-speaking world, but let's cross the Atlantic and go on to talk about the Argentine presidential election. Yes, the first round of the election took place on Sunday. Uh, it was uh, the outcome was something of a surprise. Uh, I should say the two uh, the two top two finishers who will be heading into a November nineteenth runoff were not necessarily surprised. If you had looked at, at pre election polling, uh, Economy Minister Sergio Massa uh, and the far right slash libertarian slash uh, money kook Javier Malay. Uh, finished one and two. The surprise was the order in which they finished. Massa actually won the first round. This is after polling consistently suggested that Millet uh, would win the first round and maybe flirt with an outright victory, outright first round victory. Uh, it wound up with Massa at uh, a little over 36% of the vote to Millet uh, at around 30%. So uh, that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, it's it's caused people, I think, to re to maybe rethink their assumptions about the runoff uh, and to think that maybe Millet is is more vulnerable than previously thought. Uh, I will say the third place finisher, conservative Patricia Bullrich, endorsed Millet uh, earlier this week. I think on Wednesday. Yes, it was Wednesday. So, so and ideologically, we you know her voters are probably a little more simpatico with Millet. Uh, even as as kind of out there as he seems to be, uh, so we can probably expect more of her voters to the extent that they they vote at all and don't stay home uh, to go to break for Malay uh, than than for Massa. But I, I still think the uh, the outcome here and the the confounding of of what seemed to be conventional wisdom about Malay's uh, chances suggests that the runoff could be uh, could be equally confounding. It, it uh, indicates, among other things, that Malay may have a bit of trouble attracting new voters, period. He, he took about the same percentage of the vote on Sunday that he got in the primary election in August when he won, uh, quote-unquote, won the primary election, and that set a lot of people uh, to thinking, oh, well, this is a foregone conclusion that he's going to win. Uh, I think that's uh, that's you know, kind of shaken up now, uh, and there's some question about uh, whether he can really broaden his appeal enough to to win the runoff. And we're going to have a special on that, too. So everyone keep your, I don't know, how would you say, your eyes on your podcast app, your ears keep, keep open your powder dry. Those podcast streets. Um, all right. Uh, let's conclude with a typically happy subject, and that's climate change. So, Derek, could you tell us about this Antarctic Glacier Report? Yeah, there was a study published in uh, the journal Nature Climate Change earlier this week suggesting that uh, we may be now locked into significant glacier melting in western Antarctica. Western Antarctica is home to a number of large glaciers, including uh, the Thwaites Glacier, which is affectionately known as the Doomsday Glacier, because if it melts, it by itself will, will raise global sea levels by about 10 feet, which is, uh, you know, maybe not a full doomsday scenario, but pretty bad. 
Um, the the study suggests that even if humanity suddenly decided to uh, start taking climate change seriously, and I think uh, you and I both know that we're not, that it's it's unavoidable now. Like we, we've we've emitted so much carbon, uh, this is that this is locked in. That these glaciers are going to experience significant melt due to warming, primarily to warming ocean temperatures uh, in the coming years, and it, it's going to take. Uh, you know, potentially eons to recover, uh, you know, if that's even possible uh, from from the the damage that's been done here. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, not a not a good way to end uh, the news here, I guess. But, uh, you know, we started on a downer. We can end on a downer. Uh, This is uh, if anybody's paying attention still uh, amid all the wars, uh, climate change is is not going well. Derek, at least our news will never make you snooze. Thank you so much for your knowledge, and we'll see everyone soon. Bye. Bye.